So, so as you can see, I'm taking this uh, this podcast call from bed. Got some okay. got me propped up on some pillows. Uh, oh, nice. Turns out, Comfy. yeah. I mean, nice, nice until you hear why is uh, I got an injured my lower spine a little bit, lifting weight I shouldn't have been. Yeah, that's that's not great. I've been confined to uh, to no strenuous activity by my physio for the next couple of days. If you have a very hard time deadlifting. 100 kgs you should probably not do it 10 times in a row <laughs> oh man that's that sucks that sucks uh, <laughs> how's uh how's london done yeah it's good it's good i was actually up in edinburgh so it was quite quite nice it was actually quite a nice uh, couple of days there did a workshop for some customers and basically drank whiskey <laughs> i mean when in yeah. scotland you gotta have some scotch yeah, I went up this really like windy hill. Uh, there's a place called Arthur's Seat. Can I quickly ask you a question? Are there yeah. any non-windy hills in Scotland? I, I can't confirm or deny. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they possibly, but I, I highly doubt it. Yeah, it's like this. I think it's it, it's weird because there's always people. You're like, oh, I'm just going to go for like a walk up this little hill in the middle of Edinburgh, and there's just like a whole bunch of people that are all doing the same. So it's like this like horde of people going up this really well first of all it's quite muddy to get up there so you know, <laughs> you're like slipping about and you know there's quite a, a steep cliff edge and you're like okay i must mustn't fall down <laughs> there. or you're having a blast i'm having a blast <laughs> <laughs> exactly and then everyone's kind of like just walking down this hill and then i saw that like i saw this lady like uh, walking her cat <laughs> yeah it was quite <laughs> just like this random cat on a leash like walking along I was like, okay, okay well, I'm sure that that cat was having the absolute worst time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was the cat and her dog was also there with her. So it was quite, quite Ooh, interesting. Yeah, that cat was definitely having a hard time. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it had like the bravery of a of an ox or whatever, but yeah, it was interesting. Hmm. Uh, but there's just like, yeah, it's so many people. We're going to, we've got a really interesting topic lined up today. How yeah. about... Since again we're professional podcasters, how about you mm-hmm. you roll us in and uh, we we get cracking? Okay, let's do it. Good, <laughs> hello, good morning, good afternoon, <laughs> wherever you are. Welcome to Herman and Jason Spin the Yarn, and today we are going to talk about some more city stuff, as as you might have heard in our previous podcasts. We're some nerds when it comes to uh, city planning, city design, and also maybe on the topic of efficiency. I think. You, you had some interesting things. It's basically this awesome graph of where they've taken a map of a city and they've overlaid onto this map the return on investment for those different areas, right? So you've got basically how much money does that uh, area generate versus how much or does lose. it cost to... Or lose. Mm. And how much does it cost to maintain that area? In the typical sense, you've got this sort of 3d playing graph of like really high areas of or really like where the return on investment is high and really low areas where you know it's terrible and but it only caveat being that it is american based so we'll have to we'll have to see see um you know if the trend continues but i guess the trend generally does apply yeah the the trend does apply is they actually go and take a look at a couple of non-american cities and it tends to actually emphasize it more especially when you have uh, cities that do have more densely walkable areas but let me paint a little picture for you so 
if we have a old downtown area or just an old area that is a mixed use block that we used to build everything as. So there's a little gym, there's a corner store, there's a little grocery mart, and there's a taco, a taco joint, right? Just a little window in a wall. And uh, that's the first level and street level. And then above it are some uh, just small residential apartments. When you have an area like that, it is a dense walkable, well, a densely packed economic area, despite it looking a bit older and rundown. And then compare that to, say, a drive through McDonald's, which has a lot of parking space, more parking space than there is building. So it actually takes up the same amount of space, but it's just one McDonald's. When you take a look at the, at the graph for those particular exact areas, you'll see that the McDonald's area actually loses the city money, whereas the densely, uh, the densely packed, uh, more useful area is uh, actually a net positive uh, revenue-wise for the city in terms of taxable, taxable money brought in. And the, uh, the reason for this is just the, the cost of utilities, because it turns out uh, everything costs energy, therefore money, to move around, whether that be uh, electricity and water or fire services, etc., etc. So that kind of sums up some of the reasons why this graph looks the way that it does. And I think the other point is that it's more convenient. So whereas you're looking at the, the cost side, there's actually the return side of, you know, making becoming, you know, more prosperous, right? So, I mean, you have it in your anecdotes about the everything store. When you've got a store that's right below you or just around the corner, you're probably more like you're more likely to pop in and you know buy stuff and buy stuff more regularly. Whereas if you had to you know get in your car, drive to a, a shopping center, I mean obviously shopping centers still do pretty well, but you miss out on those kind of small impulse purchases, and so you can have a lot more uh, activity, you know, from a corner shop or you know you have some sort of office place nearby, just being able to so- walk close. So my yep. corner shop, the everything store, it's uh, it's less impulse purchases. It's more I go in there. I'm like, can I please have two mangoes? And he says, you want three mangoes? I'm like, I'm <laughs> having three mangoes. Uh, and he's like, and I've got some really good mushrooms just came in today. And I'm like, I wasn't planning to use mushrooms, but they're in the bag already. So I guess I'm yeah. going to buy them. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, that, that that's that's the reality it is. It's uh, that you need to... In order to have a prosperous business, uh, and this is mostly for the commercial space, is that you need to have people, right? Um, and by having a high density of people, you're going to have, you know, more people coming past your store. And obviously, you know, this applies to restaurants. You know, the more people, you know, passing by, they'll see, hey, there's a there's a cool restaurant, and then they can potentially go in and purchase and have a little bit of mm-hmm. lunch. And that what we've, over time, what we've seen in talk to. Yeah, what we've seen in all of these different neighborhoods that are mixed use and walkable and uh, have residential combined with other small businesses is that they are the powerhouses of the city. They might not look it when you when you walk through there because it, they generally are single or double story um, with, you know, generally poorer parts of town. This is in a huge contrast to when you see uh, the suburbs where you've got big fancy houses, lush lawns, 
in South Africa's case, you know, high walls with security guards, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out that, that those spaces are actually a big drain on city finances and that these poorer, more closely packed, uh, walkable and mixed use neighborhoods are actually subsidizing the, the suburbs in terms of the utility cost versus the tax revenue for the city. And so in this video, uh, it shows that a lot of U.S. cities specifically are actually going broke or are massively in debt because they really follow this whole car-centric suburban sprawl model that and pass so much zoning legislation that actually makes it difficult to build anything but single-family single homes. And the places that people actually want to live in are like the cool hipster parts of town and what quote unquote, the hipster parts of town are, are just the way that the city was built. It's the older parts of town that haven't been knocked down to turn into either high rise business buildings or suburban sprawl. Yeah. So I think it, it definitely comes out in South Africa in the context of like, um, these lives, like these, uh, villages where you basically have all of your amenities within the same area, but you just don't get the same density. And, and again, it's kind of like you have to build it. You have to build that hub of activity uh, in your gated community. Um, so rather what you want to do is try and make use of what's already there and, you know, just build uh, some interesting interesting uh, use cases and facilities. The well, yeah, really... other thing. Yeah, go oh, on. You go. You go uh, what's, what is interesting about these mixed-use neighborhoods is that we do see a mixture of both just this is the old city that is now the quote-unquote hipster neighborhood, as well as new developments that make it a mixed-use area, generally in like student parts of town, where you'll have a food market right next to some uh, apartment buildings, right next to a park, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And those areas are also economically prosperous and are very, very recent developments. Uh, Linden in Johannesburg is a good example of that. In uh, in Cape Town, we're starting to see a couple of places that are being developed as quote-unquote studenty areas, like uh, down on the intersection of kind of Rondebosch and, and Newlands for the UCT students. And it's it's actually really interesting to see that dynamic um, showing up here as well. What was quite interesting about that graph is, uh, as well, is in cities that have very distinct public transport routes, you can actually see the increase in economic activity right along those lines that you can actually track where the public transport routes are by the economic activity generated by those er areas. And the other, the other source of economic activity uh, is if you think of someone who is going to work, right, um, for them... A lot of time is spent on commutes, right? So in a city and especially like cities like London, what it, what's really useful is to be able to, after work, you have the ability to go to another area. You have the ability to explore an area. You want to maybe meet up with friends. Not There's a saying in, in the UK that if you if you like more than 30 minutes away from your mate, uh, you're probably never going to see that person because you're too busy <laughs> either commuting or working or, you know, you don't have the time to go across town and, you know, uh, explore some, you know, new restaurant or new uh, art experience, all those kind of things. So by having a density 
uh, packed or more more density, you have more opportunity for someone who's after work going to go have a bagel in you know East Town, or you know they can go over to Sea Point and have you know watch the sunset and then still get home in, on time. Whereas in another stat that I saw this week, uh, there was a statistic. Of, this was on Twitter, and it says that. As of 2020, Americans saved over 60 million commute hours per day with remote work. So uh, assuming a five-day day weeks, uh, that's 16.3 billion hours saved per year, equivalent to uh, 23,000 lifetimes. So if you can imagine all of that time that is going into commuting, and I mean, that's not just in, in the, the US. I have a couple of colleagues who spend uh, anywhere from you know, 10 minutes to 45 minutes to get to work. Uh, this is either on a daily basis, although they are trying to do sort of more three days a week. And for me, I'm just thinking, where is that time going? Um, I it's, guess it's you going can. to you getting frustrated in traffic is where that's going. Exactly. So you, you're getting frustrated. I mean, you can double it. You can make it more effective, I guess, with public transport. You can, you know, effectively read on, on the train. You can, you know, do some other things, maybe... Uh, but the, the, I think the where the US kind of gets it wrong is that they don't have those those pieces of infrastructure. They don't have those travel corridors, and then they also have uh, you know a bunch of cars. So as as an individual driving through traffic through you know a very busy city, anyone who's driven into Cape Town in the morning will know it's uh, it's a nightmare, and you you just get to work, you're frazzled, and you're not really interested in doing anything. Else. Yeah, absolutely. Is is commutes are are mentally degrading. It, the research has shown that the uh, your cortisol level during your morning or afternoon commute spikes because you are in confrontational relationships with everyone around you, and the unfortunate fact of the matter is that when you put more people on the road, people don't start to drive better people start to drive worse and a great example is this morning i rolled out of bed to go and have a coffee in observatory and i borrowed emma's car and i Hmm. drove down to observatory now i generally ride my bike or take an uber and i can with my bike avoid traffic and in an uber you know fiddle around on my phone or just gaze out the window and not really care much about it but this time i drove into observatory and as you will know in Cape Town there is no parking and so it was awful getting there in the traffic first and then I had to drive around the block a couple of times and then I uh, turned I, I put on my indicator to turn to the side but there was a person coming and then the person behind me hates the fact that he now has to wait for like 10 seconds for me to turn so he leans on his hooter and it just it just made me angry right and i'm yeah. very much not an angry person but this interaction by the stranger that was so like awful is just how traffic do right what what happened over there is not an outlier by any chance yeah. whereas if you're in a a walking uh if you're if you're walking around i think that what happens is when you're inside of a car you become anonymous kind of like on the internet so you can be absolutely awful to your fellow person so if you're walking around and someone steps you know accidentally bumps you unless you're an absolute asshole you're probably like oh i'm sorry oh sorry and then you know you go along your days you don't turn to that person 
and just shout at them, right? Yeah. Whereas that's Although, the standard <laughs> response in a car. Although I've seen a few interactions in, in London where there's been like a, a, a cyclist who's yelling at like some lady because she tried to turn into a road without looking. Uh, and I understand be that because... But, but well, that's, I, I that's, completely it's, understand. It's probably, yeah. yeah, go on. I, I completely understand that. And it's, it, it is how I sometimes feel on my motorcycle in that people in cars are very... They don't, they don't see anyone smaller than them. And the problem is that everyone smaller than them has the potential to get killed by them. And yeah. so when a car does something uh, shitty to a pedestrian, a cyclist, or someone on a motorcycle, it is infuriating because they are putting your life at risk by texting on their cell phone while they drive or just not paying attention. And so I understand the root of that cyclist's frustration. However, if a person if an old lady was like taking their sweet time crossing the bicycle path i'm sure the bike the cyclist wouldn't sit there and shout at the old lady unless yeah. again an absolute asshole yeah that that uh, anonymity piece is quite interesting so it's like the the driver also feels kind of shielded so they don't have you know they're not as uh, ashamed of of you know cutting off someone because from the outside you're just this car right you're not really like uh you don't have that human at element um yeah i mean on on the topic of uh, cyclists and pedestrians and cars i don't know if you know about this but uh, i saw it this morning is that there's going to be a new there's a new proposal uh to uh ban anything but walking on the promenades uh so i think if anyone has ever been to cape town or for those who haven't the promenade is basically a wonderful piece of uh a piece of real estate that comes along the Seapoint uh, coast. So you're overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. You can see the lovely ocean up in front of you, the mountains behind you. It's and so it's gorgeous. just a really lovely place to walk. And there's a couple of uh, sort of grass areas where people can uh, sit down and have a picnic. And especially on a nice, nice warm summer's afternoon, you can have people lazing there, having a good time. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a bit of art there and a few jungle gyms. So the problem is that uh, there are quite a bunch of quite a lot of scooters, uh, and there's also quite a lot of cyclists. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to uh, basically remove uh, or ban cycling, roller skating, skateboarding, uh, anything other than walking on the promenade. What is your thoughts on this? First so of all? I actually do have opinions on this. <clears throat> I'm sure you do. So, so this entire proposal sounds more to me like old people shaking their fist and saying, ah, kids these days with wheels on their feet. And it doesn't come from a place of, uh, of statistical analysis. There have been pretty much no cases of injury or uh, nuisance caused by these bicycles and scooters and rollerblades and skateboards on the promenade. I think that it is a beautiful area for them to be in, with one exception. And I think that this is where people are starting to get frustrated, is with the rise of e-bikes and e-scooters. It means that people can ride a lot faster, right? And my, my opinions on e-bikes are a bit mixed, is I personally believe that e-bikes are motorcycles. They are two-wheeled machines that are motorized and they can go as fast as motorcycles. And so if you're going to allow e-bikes on the promenade, there needs to be a very distinct speed limit, 
right? And I'm not too sure how you would enforce that. But I understand the root of the problem is people want to go for a nice walk on the promenade. And no one has a problem with those single speed discovery vitality bicycles that don't go very fast and that you pedal backwards to stop. But as soon as people come past on their 70,000 Rand uh, mountain e-bikes at, you know, 30 kilometers an hour, that is not an experience that you want when you're taking your leisurely stroll. So by going and banning all things with wheels from the promenade, it's a very overreacted solution to a very specific problem. Um, what is quite interesting is that Open Streets, which is the uh, open the, the initiative in Cape Town that is uh, looking to cordon off roads and in, uh, get cycling lanes set up and all of that, they had a bit of a Twitter a Twitter flame war with the uh, people who were proposing this legislation, and they're like, "If you can show us the actual stats." that you guys are trying to base this legislation on, that would be great. Because right now, again, it's in the Simpsons, you like old man shouts at Sky. Is That's yeah. pretty much the basis for this legislation, which should not be the case. Yeah, so I also get the feeling that it's someone has gotten a little bit upset. Uh, and, you know, this is kind of, you know, some lawyer trying to get one up on, on, the, on the youngsters one last time before he croaks. It does have that feeling to it. But I mean, it also has the feeling of, um, you know, if you want to incentivize people to, you know, get outside, be a bit more mobile, you know, experience nature, just, you know, connect with nature a lot more, you know, having, you know, one kid on his bicycle while his mom like pushes the pram down the promenade. I don't think that's, you know, worthy of an outright ban. I think there is kind of an intermediate solution, right? Um, and I saw it when I was in uh, Valencia the other day. In the park, they would have, uh, first of all, they would have sort of the main walking area, but they'd also have a separate cycle path. So in terms of people who are using, you know, a bicycle to commute, uh, maybe going for a little bit of exercise, you know, some people don't like running, some people like cycling. If they had a separate path that was uh, maybe dedicated just to, to cycles, scooters, those kind of things, that might be an, a, a good in-between. But obviously, you know, that requires uh, effort from more infrastructure, the, more infrastructure, more effort. Uh, but I think altogether, it might be more um, pleasant because I, I've been one of those people cycling on the promenade and to weave between people, you know, sometimes you just want to get, get where you're getting. And, uh, yeah. and be better. Uh, the fact of the matter is that you're not going to ride on the road over there because despite this being a walking-ish area, that road is still an absolute mess of cars, you know, driving at 60 kilometers an hour, which is enough to kill you. Um, mm. So having, I'd say having a cycle path next to the road, preferably with an island in between, or having the cars parked as the, as the barrier would actually be a great solution over there. And you wouldn't even have to specify like no cycling on the promenade as I think people who are cycling will naturally go to the cycling path, especially if there are people on the promenade. It, it would be a system that like fixes itself because as soon as you ban cycling and skateboarding and stuff on the promenade, then you need to police it, right? Which yeah. means you need to get officials to hang out on the promenade to tell people to get off their skateboards or get off of their bicycles. Yeah. And that just doesn't sound like a solution to me. <clears throat> I, 
I like I like it. We're uh, we're talking about incentives again, which is always a, always yeah. a great topic. You know, trying to incentivize people. You know, give them what 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 are their their main goals? You know, the people walking are obviously doing it for leisure or for for you know some sort of uh, exercise. People are running off for doing it for exercise. People are cycling. Maybe it's leisure. Maybe it's um, maybe it's getting somewhere. You know, maybe you want to just you know commute to work. Um, so I would say yeah. So I am probably. I'm probably in favor of the ban with the exception of adding an extra cycle lane. I think that would be always cycle specific area. And maybe it would link up to our uh, other idea of having a cycle route all the way from the promenade to uh, Musingberg, which is all the way down. So I, I, I see, I see your, your recommendation over there. And I would, I would actually disagree with you. And I would say, I don't think that we should ban bicycles because currently what I want is I want to see more bicycles and uh, the like having no bicycle, like all roads are already pretty much no bicycle areas just based on the fact that they are dangerous. Right. Mm. And so by saying you can't cycle them where it's not dangerous means that no one is going to start cycling. And I think in order to get bicycle legislation passed to get like bicycle paths and stuff installed, we need more people cycling. So again, the incentive over there is to, try and entice people to start cycling as a way of getting around. And hopefully the more people that cycle, the more politicians will look at that and be like, oh shit, we should cater to these people. Yeah, uh, that makes sense actually. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, I think it's also more, it's more the short term, right? So the short term is mm -hmm. we want more people to be mobile, want more people to actually feel safe cycling, uh, doing outdoor activities, maybe in between, maybe they just uh, sort of curb the e-scooters, uh, I think, or anything electrified. Yeah. Because, yeah, as you mentioned, I think the e-scooters are the ones that are, you know, if you've got like some seven-year-old on an e-scooter flying down and they whack into mm. some old lady, that's not going to be I'll, great for anybody. Having having been on an e-scooter and you you still have the scar on your forehead from your e-scooter <laughs> experience, is yeah. I'll... I'll 100% say that those e-scooters are a lot less safe than bicycles. You have a lot, um, a lot less granularity when turning. You have smaller wheels, so you are more prone to hitting holes and falling off. Uh, whereas a bicycle is actually a very, very stable form of transport. Yeah. Um, maybe going back to the original topic, uh, where do you think? would be the highest ROI spots in Cape Town. And also maybe as an, a follow-on, maybe it would be a cool to have a kind of a challenge, uh, the first spin the yarn challenge of maybe building one of our own maps. Uh, Ooh, that could be hard, really neat, yeah. How hard do you think it would be? And where do you think would be the most, uh, the highest return on investment in Cape Town? So I'll, I'll, uh, as far as actually going and creating this map, it turns out that it is actually quite a lot of work. And the ones that uh, I've looked at so far, they're all done by this by this firm called Urban3, uh, who is essentially a consultancy for city municipalities on helping them to improve their, um, their money flow and improving their city design for better living and improved revenue. And what they do is they literally map out the entire city and they go piece by piece, figure out what the utility cost is to the city for each piece of land, as well as the uh, tax revenue. And so you can get those documents from the municipalities 
but as you know, Cape Town is built up of lots of different municipalities. So you have to go and you have to get those documents for all of those, create a nice big CSV file that delineates every single piece of property, both its ta- taxable uh, revenue as well as its, uh, its utility cost, and then build your own graph, which is entirely possible. Um, and it would be a pretty fun little challenge to do. Uh, that being said, I would say that the highest revenue parts of Cape Town would either be um, somewhere in the city center, like Lower Batencant, or on Kloof Street, Bree Street, Long Street, as those have the highest density of uh, small businesses, whether they be co-working spaces or um, small offices or restaurants, as well as residential areas. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think I, I, I'd probably agree. Um, I, I guess I haven't dived, I haven't had a chance to dive too much into, you know, what are the kind of measures they look at when it comes to uh, measuring the prosperity. Uh, I guess maybe on a high, I mean, taking it on a high level, I guess you could start off with the, what's the smallest, what's the smallest MVP of figuring out, like, what is the return? Versus what is the cost? I'm, I'm sure there's metrics on, you know, what is the cost to maintain uh, the city of Cape Town as one municipality or, you know, what is the economic output? And and then kind of diving deeper and just, you know, making, you know, starting with like the lowest making resolution. More and more granular. I mean, going yeah, higher I, and higher. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, you could actually build this by just taking each different municipality and having it as one bar. So you'll have like the city center you know, how big is that? And then you'll have mm. Orangezicht, you'll have Friedehoek, and then you'll have, you know, the suburbs like Claremont and Newlands and stuff like that. Mm. And I think that we will see the same trend. I think that we will see city center gardens um, and uh, Orangezicht, or maybe not Orangezicht, but um, the, you know, Kloofnecki area mm. as being fairly economically productive. And then I think we will see the suburbs, including, interestingly enough, like Frida Hook and Tamburskloof as being uneconomically productive as they don't necessarily have that many. Okay, maybe Frida Hook will have a higher one because it does have a bit more density in terms of apartment buildings, whereas Tamburskloof tends to be single family homes, but they are quite nicely packed together. As soon as you head out to the suburbs, Rondebosch, Newlands, Claremont, it starts spreading out a little bit. And I think that we will see the economic productivity go way down as most of that is just garden space. Mm-hmm. But you still have to have roads connecting all of these all of these things together. And as the video puts it, is the worst culprits are the cul-de-sacs, which are essentially governmentally sponsored driveways. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would even say, I mean... Yeah, even on a time span basis, if you think about like startups versus the big city, because it would make sense like, uh, you know, uh, Portside might be, you know, the highest economic activity being like where we have the banking district and those kind of things. Uh, but maybe in terms of like, you know, supplying jobs, we could have a, a metric mm-hmm. and maybe like, you know, where there's small startups and small kind of businesses. Well, so like so I think that that is taken into account, right, is that that is essentially taxable revenue for an area because businesses are based in a specific place. Yeah, awesome. I, I mean, so, the, other, um, the other aspect that we could think of is, uh, you know, if you had some sort of uh, NGO that raised money to hire Urban3 to do the mapping for us, 
mm-hmm. that would be quite a good good uh, stepping stone. So anyone out there who wants to donate uh, NGO money to the Spin the Yarn Foundation <laughs> gets <to> be established. <laughs> uh, this is our plans, and this is how we're going to do it. This is uh, the uh, hill that we are going to stand on. So I'd like to I'd like to quickly talk about um, the what I said about. Tambor's Cliff versus Freda Hook, and that Freda Hook may be more economically productive because it's got apartments, whereas Tambor's Cliff mm-hmm. is single-family homes. And that's actually a really interesting uh, distinction over there, is what makes apartments a really, really good use of land isn't necessarily the fact that they are built closer together so you can fit more people into a specific place, but it is the utility cost as well as the accessibility of it. So what I mean by that is with the utility cost, we tend to think of, you know, roads and electricity, internet, stuff like that. And that is all a factor. If you have, you know, 20 houses versus 20 apartments, it's really easy to run one electricity line into the apartment block and all the apartments get electricity. Whereas with each individual house, they each need to have their own individual connections. And the same can be said for uh, internet and fiber optics and water, et cetera, et cetera. But another one that's really interesting is just the fact that what surrounds an apartment building are other apartments, sorry, what surrounds an apartment are other apartments in the block. And this dramatically decreases the cost of uh, heat, uh, heating and cooling the place because they are insulated so well <laughs> by other apartments right, is you don't have to have uh, very insulated walls between you and the next door neighbor because of the fact that they are effectively insulating your apartment and you're effectively insulating their apartment. Um, And I think that's just a a really neat way to go about it, bar the fact that, you know, maybe they make a lot of noise. Yeah, so I mean, it's like like typical economies of scale that we're actually seeing. We're, We're seeing like, you know, uh, you build one house, you know, that's got a certain cost. If you're building an apartment block, when you're building one wall, you're actually building one wall for two houses, right? So if you look at it in that sense, you know, like, you know, three apartment blocks in a row, you're building less walls. And also, yeah, when it comes to the utilities, uh, I think it's easier to actually build and also easier to manage because I can imagine, you know, if you're thinking of the future where we're thinking of things like smart grids, uh, becoming very intelligent or you know i've seen a few articles recently about you know feeders so you feeding energy into a building but if a building is you know zero rated or actually has a positive uh, net effect on the energy then you can actually feed it back so when it comes to building a complicated uh, network like that where you can feed energy in and out it's going to be a little bit easier if you've just got a couple of apartment blocks versus if you have to do it on a per house basis uh, because the kind of tracking that you need to do is uh, a lot more at scale. You're going to have a lot more sort of IoT enabled sort of uh, services and it just gets a lot more complicated. Um, the other side is though, uh, I think there is also a cultural thing to it. And I think people tend to, you know, once they, I mean, it's easy for us, uh, we're just empty nesters. So when it comes to people who have families, you know, they don't mind having a backyard, but maybe you can compromise and have a, a cool park or being close to something as cool as a promenade or, you know, having a cool place for your kids to play. I think that would make a sort of big benefit. And then also reducing your commute time, you know, working from home. It, Interestingly enough, be- one of the things that we have that, that we have seen is that uh, 
kids who live in good neighborhoods inside of more densely populated uh, cities or, you know, uh, living spaces inside of cities uh, actually have much more uh, social connections as they can say, oh, I'm going to go and meet Timmy at the park. And mom says, cool, I'll see you later. And they go and they meet Timmy at the park. Whereas if you're in a car centric suburb, it's like, hey, I really want to go and see Timmy. Can you please take me? And mom's like, hold up, Desperate Housewives is on. Go play (laughs) on your VR. And so uh, so he goes and he does that. I, I'm always I'm always quite jealous of uh, some of the kids who grew up in the city because I, need, I know even when I was in Cape Town there was like uh, I saw like a teenage uh, school like people from school like just having coffee at a cafe on the corner right. and I was like mm. I never had that <laughs> I'm like I mean I, I don't even think I was allowed to drink coffee because it would just make well I didn't even really enjoy it so I, I only drank it like marginally but yeah I mean if and I see it here in London as well you you see. Uh, a bunch of kids like going to the cinema like going on the tube like you know you, you're much more connected and uh yeah it's, i mean it, it, you just have a lot more options at your disposal at a very younger at a much younger age man public to, like, transport when you're young must be so nice like german german kids were yeah all on the train and stuff and i like it hasn't even clicked until right now that my entire childhood was entirely dependent on could my mom take me there? Yeah. And especially having, you know, a single parent upbringing, I couldn't even like, Oh, mom's busy. Let me go and talk to dad because you know, dad, dad was, dad had gone to pick up a box of cigarettes and never come back. (laughs) Um, And and so I I was like literally homebound. Yeah. Unless, unless, yeah. Unless you get that bicycle. And I mean, we had a, we could kind of cycle around and I could, cycle to the petrol station and uh pick up a, a few sweets and uh you know a glass bottle of coke uh, and that was my like my outing but uh yeah i mean you you're giving people a lot more opportunity to interact and you're giving them the opportunity to go like go to an art gallery or go to you know do something productive and en- you know enjoy your childhood hmm. go so, and make yeah. tiktok videos in the park i mean that, that that's the that's other what side, the kids you know? are doing <laughs> <laughs> that's what they're doing um yeah i mean i think i, I definitely agree with that um yeah i mean the, there's not much else to say i think i, I think we we uh I think we nailed it we nailed the topic uh i think i mean what's 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 the future what do you think is going to happen do you think we're going to get to a stage you think we're going to become more dense in terms of in, in cape town just in general i know obviously yeah, remote it's work with... is pushing people out of the cities do you think they're going to come back what are, what do you think is going to happen one of the things that these studies have shown is that to the city, the suburbs are a drain on finances and cities are going to respond by increasing their taxation of single family homes, right? It is only natural for the markets to correct for that. Now, what I believe that that will do is it'll turn the suburbs into a much more bougie experience like only real fancy people can go and live in the suburbs if they really want to even though it provides a worse cost of living and not just cost of living but also just worse living experience but you get to have your home and however at least you won't be subsidized by the poorer neighborhoods and you will be 
providing tax money to the city that can then use that to increase public transport and other infrastructure and actually pay for your cul-de-sac, right? So, so I, I don't think that suburbs are going to go away. Suburbs are here to stay, but they are going to become more expensive as more and more cities become wiser to the fact that they are just the devil. Are you saying that economic forces are going to correct it? So I believe that uh, I believe that economic. Are you saying that the economic economic the economy will correct these kind of problems because of the fact that there is a desire to live in a in a more reasonable area? You know, if there's more suburbs, there's going to be more tax later down the line because you know they are uneconomical, uh, and then people will say, "Hey, it's just cheaper, better to live in the city or live a little bit closer." Um, and yeah. maybe yeah, we'll, we'll see, see this, this constant ebb and flow of people moving city remote, city remote.